We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall, and welcome to The Meaningful Life. If you're feeling stuck in old habits and pursuing old grievances, the chances are that the pain and obsessive thoughts are taking up too much space in your brain and making it harder to live a meaningful life. Time and again, the solution offered is to forgive and move on, often advice that's easier to give than to take. That's because we're confused about what forgiveness involves and lump in a whole lot of things it does not. What my witness has to say today, I'm going to describe as tough love. On one hand, he took my breath away because he tells it like it is, no matter how much we don't want to hear these truths. But on the other hand, he has some practical techniques to help us face our biggest fears. So I'm really looking forward to our conversation. My witness is Dr. Fred Lushkin, who is the director of the Stanford University Forgiveness Project, a senior consultant in health promotion at Stanford University, and a professor at the Institute for Transpersonal Psychology. He's the author of two books on the topic, Forgive for Good, A Proven Prescription for Health and Happiness, and Forgive for Love, The Missing Ingredient for a Healthy and Lasting Relationship. So, Fred, how did you get interested in forgiveness? I mean, like almost everybody else, I was miserable and couldn't do it. <laughs> I don't, I don't, you know, it's not the kind of thing that you're, you're walking down the street on a good day and thinking, boy, I should check out this idea of forgiveness. Um, <laughs> it's when your life sucks and there's no way out that people start stumbling upon forgiveness. And I was no different. A very close friend had betrayed me, and I was very hurt, angry, scared, miserable, cranky, bitter for a number of years. And I just didn't know what to do with that kind of injury. And I think it's important to say that you are an only child, and this friend was like a brother to you. So it's not just any old friendship, it's like a, a brother that uh, you felt betrayed you. And that point in time, yes. And the good news is, after I forgave, we've been the best of friends ever since, and had a nice long conversation with him just yesterday. And for many years, the fact that I clearly forgave somebody who had treated me badly was one of the value propositions that I brought to my work because I'm not sure that any of us who do these healing things or therapy, if we can't do it ourselves, I'm not sure we carry that much conviction with us when we ask other people to do it. So let's get straight down to it. What is forgiveness? Because I think we imagine we know what forgiveness is, but I think when we really look at it, it's more complicated than we think. No, it's actually quite simple. And we make it needlessly complicated. Um, <laughs> you talked about one of those kind of inconvenient truths that that would be a major player in the inconvenient truth category. You know, It's like, 
Uh, it's way, way more simpler than that. I mean, I can come in from a couple directions. The definition that we landed at now is forgiveness is making peace with the word no. That's interesting. Forgiveness is making peace with the word no. Tell right. me more about that. Well, you know, if you have a um, two-year-old and you tell them no, you can't do what you want, they throw a hissy fit and they, you know, they piss around for 10 minutes and then they forget. If you tell a 30-year-old no, they can throw a hissy fit for the rest of their life. And there is something to that about the relative levels of maturity, that for an adult, unforgiveness is an extended hissy fit at getting no. That no, life did not work out in some way the way you fantasized it should. And so you're throwing a hissy fit. Forgiveness is simply resolving that hissy fit. How were you not accepting a no with your best friend? Two things happened. Both were fortuitous. One, I went to a local supermarket to go shopping in the midst of a period of time where I was really unhappy in life. And I was very cranky and grouchy. My wife told me, Fred, I need you to go to Safeway, which is a, like an American, like supermarket, right? And I was in a cranky mood then. I didn't like my job. And she was home with our first child and was loving her life, which made me feel even worse. So I got crankier, the happier that she was. And I let her know how unhappy I was. So one day in my crankiness, she said, Fred, you need to go to Safeway and get X, Y, and Z. So I said, no, I'm cranky. I want to go to Albertsons, another supermarket, and I'll get X, Y, and Z there, but Albertsons is closer, and I don't want to deal with the crowds, blah, blah, blah. She tells me, Fred, you have to go to Safeway because one of the items is not out Albertsons. So I go to Safeway. I'm cranky as hell. It's around Christmas time. So I'm like parking like a mile away, this enormous shopping center. I'm walking to Safeway with steam coming out of my ears about poor me, that nobody knows, you know, my misery, all this self-indulgent nonsense. And I walk into Safeway and they don't have the item that my wife told me I had to go to Safeway <laughs> for. <laughs> I go right to the, you know, the shelf and they don't have the item. And like, I, I, you know, my finger goes up. It's like, screw you. But for one second, the veil lifted, the, the misery veil and the, the self-pity veil. And I stopped and saw that I'm in Safeway where, like, I have opportunities that the most abundant human beings in the history of the planet didn't have. And here I am walking into Safeway miserable. So I healed myself pretty much in that moment, not completely, but 75% of my crankiness went away by recognizing how much I wasn't seeing by being unhappy. Like I, I took responsibility for what I was seeing. Being still an obnoxious New Yorker, I ended up going to Albertsons, getting her the item that she needed coming home and handing it to her and saying, look, I had to go to Albertsons, 
but I was done being a cranky person. That transformed to my grudge is I realized that the only reason that I held on to the grudge against my friend was because I had gratitude impairment, that I had DSM GID, you know, gratitude impairment uh, disability. And I saw that that was actually my problem, not what he did. That, wait, I have a baby, I have a partner, I have a job. Why am I giving him so much power over me? So what I realized at that moment was, like, I have more control over what I obsess about and how I see things. So I could make peace with the fact that he didn't give me what I want. Like, that was one piece. The second was, I'm a long-standing CBT therapist. I mean, I, I attended the Albert Ellis Institute in Manhattan and got trained there like, you know, 30 years ago. I started to poke a little bit around in CBT with me now that I was open to having a brain back. And I said, so Fred, what does your friend actually owe you? And I said, nothing. So you made all that up about how he should be your friend, about the way he should be your friend, about everything that, you know, is right. Albert Ellis calls it masturbation. <laughs> so I looked at that and I said, and, and wait a second, Fred, what kind of friend were you? Like he did bad, but did you wish him well? No. Did you say nice things about him? No. So you were no better friend than he was, even though maybe he took the first shot. So deal with this, like deal with the fact that you're as human as he is and that you both screw up and that you can again make peace with your actual life, which is not that everything works out the way you want. So those were the two instigating factors of the Stanford Forgiveness Project. And I like a particular quote of yours that sort of tells us this. Forgiveness is about our healing and not about the people who hurt us. And I think that is really important. I'll say it again. Forgiveness is about our healing and not about the people who hurt us. And one of, of the problems is we think it's about the people that hurt us rather than it's about us, isn't it? I'm going to say it's about the relationship between us and other people and how we want to frame that relationship from our perspective. So whenever you're pissed off at somebody, you're still in relationship with them. You may not be in physical relationship with them, but you're in relationship with them. What kind of relationship do you want? That's the forgiveness question. The only part of that relationship that you may have influence over is your part. So when you make peace inside of yourself, you change the relationship. And then if there's any interest on either party or anywhere, there can be reconciliation. But there doesn't have to be. We have the opportunity to alter are part of a relationship if we wish. That's the forgiveness question. It's not us separate from them. It's us in relationship with whatever else it was. 
And so, in a sense, that forgiveness helps us get control back over our feelings. Yes. And that's its value and its purpose. And it also reduces the possibility that we will do harm in the future to our relationships. So we've talked a bit about what forgiveness is. Let's look at the other side. What is it not? It's not your tax returns. Well, I've got a few things that you say it's not, and I think I'm going to list them all one after the other, and I'd like you to explain those, because some people don't want to forgive because they think if they do forgive, that it's condoning unkindness. Absolutely. So why isn't it condoning unkindness? Because in order to do the deep, meaningful work of forgiveness, you have to recognize the harm done. So you have to recognize that there was harm done if there was to you or to somebody else. That harm may be material, that harm may be emotional, that harm may be cognitive, that harm may be physical. It it could be all sorts of things. But the first step of forgiveness is to recognize that there was harm done. The second step is, like any other healthy human, is to grieve that harm. So grieving is an active, healthy experience, which doesn't condone things. It holds them. It embraces them. It recognizes the loss and the pain. And then it suffers to realign oneself in the world. You know, it's like, my my mother was a dangerous alcoholic. It's like, that's true. And it made it much harder for me to connect with people. That's also true. So that's what you're forgiving. You're forgiving the harm and you're transforming your relationship to that harm to something benign. So it's a deep quality that is not the same as condoning, yeah, she did the best she could. That's fine too, but it's not forgiveness. Because you have to actually recognize what the pain was before you can actually forgive it. And grow in your capacity to handle pain. Forgiveness, it's a powerful, positive strength that human beings can bring to things. And another thing that people say to me who don't want to forgive somebody, and I never try and push somebody to forgive somebody, but um, this is something they say over and over again, it will excuse poor behavior. Why isn't it not excusing poor behavior if you forgive somebody? It doesn't necessarily, the behavior, they don't even have to know that you've forgiven or not. So if there's a hit and run driver and they do something that harms somebody. And, you know, if you choose to forgive it, you may never see that person again. So whether or not you excuse it or anything is not that relevant to question of forgiveness. Now, there are other aspects of dysfunctional behavior where you want to be very careful. So if you, out of cowardice, let somebody continue to mistreat you, or out of codependent tendencies, or out of lack of skill. You simply put yourself back into the same situation without dealing with the experience. 
then that's not healthy, but that's not forgiveness's fault. Forgiveness is owning that harm and processing it and recognizing that, you know, you may have to strengthen up, but it's, it doesn't mean that you have to get a lobotomy while you're doing it. So you can't take care of things. You just take care of it without a bitter and prejudicial heart. And that's the freedom of forgiveness. In fact, I would say that with people who legitimately forgive, legitimately, they're going to be less likely to allow people to mistreat them because they've wrestled with evil and suffering and unkindness and they've learned that they have certain strengths to handle it and that they have the capacity to feel pain and not have to run from it. So they would be more likely to be assertive than not. That, that would be, again, lo- a long-winded like Stanford teacher answer. I love long-winded Stanford teacher answers, so please don't worry about that. Because I think what you've also put into play, which I think is important, is forgiving somebody doesn't necessarily mean we have to reconcile with them. You can forgive them and think, you know, actually, I forgive you, but I don't want to have anything more to do with you. So it could mean reconciliation, but it doesn't have to mean reconciliation, does it? I I mean, I know you do couples work. So the metaphor that I use most often is somebody has an affair. Partner X has an affair. Partner Y gets furious and hurt legitimately. And six months later, partner Y says, you know, I've wrestled with it. I understand why you did it. I forgive you for it. I recognize that probably our marriage wasn't as good as I hoped, but I don't want to give our marriage another shot. But, you know, I'm not furious at you and I understand, but I don't want to do this again. So that's forgiveness without reconciliation. Then there's literally millions of couples who come home every day and sling insults at each other. So they reconcile every day, but haven't forgiven anything. So that's how I describe it in a very simple terms. And the other thing that I find that people have against forgiveness is that they think that if they forgive, it means there's been no consequences for the other person, that somehow if they've treated you badly, there has to be consequences. Well, that's the ages-old human dilemma of whether or not to take revenge and try to make somebody else suffer because you suffered. And so what you're really looking at is not necessarily forgiveness, but a a person's inner dilemma about how much payback they want to do. The issue with that is you'd probably want more to differentiate forgiveness with justice, which is you you can forgive somebody fully and still take them to court or press charges. Or again, in in a marital situation, I can't tell you how many people I have said, you know, forgive the bum, but make sure he pays child support. You know, it's like they're not the same thing. And the problem with unforgiveness is it, it is such an antagonistic way that it's really hard to rely on an angry inside 
to make good decisions. Like we don't realize how warped the perspective of anger and self-pity, how badly they make us make decisions about what the right course of action is. So if you have a decent marriage and somebody makes a major mistake and you've been married for 15 years, forgiving that is probably a much wiser course than not. If you've been married for two months and it's been bumpy and you find out that, you know, they really screwed up, it's a very different decision. But you want to have your wits about you, not just be consumed by anger or not even be that interested in how angry you are, because that's not going to help you make long-term discernment. So what I know with people, the way you're referring to, is the general human tendency to exaggerate the benefit of anger and self-pity and minimize anger and self-pity's cost. Oh, that's good. Say that again. That in their, in their algorithm, people love to like investigate the benefit of being angry or full of self-pity. Well, I'll make them suffer or, you know, I'll never speak to the gamut and I'll ruin my life or, you know, my partner stinks. So one day I'm just going to clean out all the furniture and boy, will they suffer. So they mull over the benefits of anger and self-pity. What they don't do is investigate the costs of it, of anger and self-pity. And so they think it's free. Mm, And it ain't free, is it? And it sure isn't. I would say it's not just not free, it's actually poisonous as well. I mean, I've heard it said like this. It's a bit like drinking poison yourself and expecting the other person to throw up. So you asked me at the beginning, like, what's the definition of forgiveness? There's a bumper sticker here, or was, written by a woman whose daughter was murdered. And the bumper sticker is, forgiveness is giving up all hope for a better past. Mm, That's very deep, isn't it? That's what we're dealing with here. And when that hope is fueled by anger, it leaves consequences in its wake. So if in a couple, both people are angry, they tend not to recognize the harm that they're doing to the relationship because they feel justified. They don't recognize how that prejudices their other relationship. You know, if you're angry, you can't necessarily turn it off when something else happens. With self-pity, they don't recognize how much that distorts their view. You know, my husband doesn't love me. My partner doesn't love me. But you become over-receptive to slights when you practice self-pity. So all these things are missing from their algorithm of should I forgive or not. So uh, you've got three core components of creating a long-standing hurt and grievance. And these are just so truthful, but we don't want to see them. So I'm going to give each one of them a little bit of time for you to explain, because I think they're so important. So the first of the core components for these long-standing hurts and grievances is exaggerating a personal offence. And I mean, there's lots of things that are painful. You know, if somebody does 
say they're going to do one thing and they do another, it's actually painful. But often we exaggerate that pain, don't we? I mean, you, you, you've told me you've been a couples therapist for a while. 35 years. So you know that more often than not, partners offend each other more that they're trying to do something for themselves than against the other partner. Yep. That the great harm that human beings do to people in this planet is almost always out of self-absorbed selfishness than it is about a desire to hurt others. We on the receiving end, though, exaggerate the intent to hurt us, and we take it often way more personally than it's intended. So the person who started all this for me, none of it had anything to do with me. I was just collateral damage to their misguided attempt to make themselves happy. That's more common than anything else. Most affairs are misguided attempts to make themselves happy. Some of them are punishment and some of them are kind of payback. You know, you've treated me terribly, so I'll treat you terribly. But more of them are just, I'm not happy. I don't know what to do about it. So I'm going to try to make myself happy, even if my methods are stupid. So the person who's the victim, so to speak, in this doesn't see this. And the second sort of component for creating a long-standing hurt or grievance is blaming the offender for how you feel. Now, if somebody's hurt us, it's okay to feel angry with them, isn't it? I think one of the great weaknesses of therapy is an exaggerated interest in people's feelings without recognizing the potential for enormous cognitive distortion. One of the basic, you know, distortions is because I feel something, it needs to be true. And so therapists, unless they've been well-trained in cognitive techniques, can't help people easily separate out accurate cognitions from inaccurate cognitions. So, you know, the mind reading and the catastrophizing. So yes, as a therapist, you want to help people experience what they're feeling. But if you don't challenge some of the assumptions under that feeling, they're going to exaggerate their feelings and then blame them on something. And usually they blame them on some offender, you know, or like this person or that person or my stupidity or this person didn't do it. And then they give that offender enormous power over their moods and mind. And so they no longer then are responsible for the conduct of their life, you know. Well, the reason I can't make a relationship is because my parents fought all the time and they didn't love me. So that's a pretty normal thing, even though it's bullshit. The reason I can't make a relationship is I had pretty inadequate parents and then I spent 15 years blaming them. And despite the fact you had an alcoholic mother, you've been able to make a long-standing relationship, I understand. 
Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm shaking my head, but I, I realize that this is just an auditory thing. The other place is physiologically. If we're upset, we're also physiologically aroused and upset. And we give other people and the past way too much control over our nervous systems. And that is a real danger for our well-being. So the final part of this is you create a grievance story. Yes. Tell me about that. The grievance story is simply the story we make up to codify the fact that it was meant to harm me and it's not my fault that I'm all bent out of shape about it. And so we turn that into a narrative to tell ourselves and the rest of the world why we can't cope with our life. And once that story gets embedded, that becomes the grievance story. It's not an accurate perspective. It's a protection against our inability to manage our experience. What I do believe is that grievance story is an essential part of grief but is not helpful long-term as an explanation of why it is I'm not competent. So it's a placeholder so that we can deal with the fact that we're not competent. And I believe grief is nature's way of letting us deal with things to create a new equilibrium. It's not a place for us to rest. So all of this is coming down to the fact that we have to manage our own feelings rather than blame other people. So I'm really upset because you've done something that's upset me. You didn't mean to do it. It's collateral damage. But over here in Collateral Damage City, it feels pretty darn horrible. But it's I'm, I'm sort of guessing that you're, uh, it's up to me to, to deal with it rather than expecting you to soothe me. So... How do I soothe myself? How do I deal with this stuff? That's too simplistic. Right. It's relationship. It's not me upset only because you did things and only for me to soothe. But my upset is there and it's inside me. And it's my responsibility to try to soothe it and try to get help. So part of it could be. You just teach people communication skills, you know, like, I'm upset. Can you please help me? You know, like, it's not just that they have to do it, but can you please help me? Or can we talk about it? Or I'm upset and I'm triggered and, you know, I may need some space. So there are strategies on the front end that retain the relationship without making it entirely the responsibility of the offended person. You know this, you teach this stuff. Yes, but I think that almost to get into that space where you can do listening and uh, you can ask curious questions rather than just sort of throwing assumptions backwards and forwards is you need to calm yourself down enough to get into these kind of skills. And you can't access those skills if you are triggered and you're full of pain and anger. Well, you know, you know, Gottman's work with the necessity of couples having repair skills. 
So one of the things that I hear you asking is, in a couple with no basis of skill, what do you do? But if it's a couple that has some repair skills, then, you know, you teach them to bring those out or use them more. It's not just that I have a responsibility to soothe myself. But I think that we do need some stress management skills for ourselves. No question. But all I was trying to do was take it away from simply two isolated or two groups of people who have no relationship. So it's just my responsibility to soothe myself. It's an us. And I think that's really important because I was sort of almost, we were going from one extreme to the other extreme. But, you know, now we're here and we're actually thinking about um, stress management skills for ourselves rather than trying to uh, get somebody else to do the, the first aid sort of kind of stuff. What's the first aid for ourselves? I mean, there's a couple of simple things. I mean, as a stress management teacher, I mean, you can teach somebody simply, in particular, if they're arguing with a partner or feel offended by a partner, just take two steps backward and turn away from them and they won't be so scary to you. Like they teach this to police officers, you know, like get out of the line of fire, so to speak. So that's that's one very simple thing. So your nervous system isn't constantly receiving threat signals. That's one. A second one is, again, a simple one, move. Walk away, jump, do jumping jacks, whatever it is, just shake it out. So those are in the midst. I like the shaking it out. I sometimes get my clients to actually stand up, bend the knees and to shake. I mean, it really is, it is just wonderful. Yeah. Okay, then when you get more interior that it's, you know, an inner thing, just stop and let's take two or three slow, deep breaths together. And, and let's harmonize our breathing so we don't perceive it as an enemy. Let's take a couple of breaths. And then if we have to go further, let's just bring our minds to a place where we're safe. So instead of being angry at this moment, take a couple of slow, deep breaths. And let's just remember a time when we were loved. Mm, that's beautiful. So right here, right now, there's no threat. I would teach like anybody struggling with, you know, something like that, a very basic mindful practice, you know, just watch a thought or watch a feeling come and go. Like they don't belong to you. You're just there for a while. Yeah. What I often say is accept the feelings, but don't go into the story. So, you know, you see a temptation to build this into a story, just watch that thought go past, accept the fact that, you know, actually name that feeling, you know, is it um, fear? Is it panic? Is it pain? What what is it? Because there's a big difference between sadness and anger, for example. It's quite useful to know which of those two you're in at the time. And then you get your cerebral cortex back. Now, I've got three things that you say that we don't really want to accept. And I think is one of the things that these three things make forgiveness harder. And the first thing that we don't like to um, accept is people are thoughtless and selfish just like us. No question. 
And it's sometimes just as difficult to forgive ourselves as it is to forgive other people. I'm going to counter that. I think the world's problem is that humans are too self-forgiving. Hmm. I, I think I would, um, I think that might be okay in political things, but I think when it comes to relationships, I think sometimes we do find it very difficult to forgive ourselves for stuff. I mean, let me just explain a little bit further what I mean. I'm, I don't, and I'm not trying to pick an argument. With forgiving someone else, you need to hold what was wrong and the harm done. To legitimately forgive ourselves, you need to do the same thing. Like, I did wrong. It caused certain harm. I need to apologize and try to make an amend. That's what real self-forgiveness is. I don't see enough people doing that. That's what I meant by there's too much shallow self-forgiveness, not real self-forgiveness, that you have to acknowledge the wrong you did. Just like for other forgiveness, you have to hold it. You have to know I did wrong or somebody did wrong and here's the consequences. Real self-forgiveness, that's part of it too. So in, with me, when I do work, I want to see couples or people have real regret, feel some guilt, have remorse because those are healthy emotions. But just like you don't want them to, you know, stay in your consciousness for too long. You want them there for a while so that you learn from them. Okay, that's my, that's a kick I'm on. So I apologize if I push that too strongly on you. No, what I always like about you, Fred, is you give it as it is. And um, that's brilliant. I mean, this is another one you say that I want to rebel against as well. And that is life is not fair. You and I can't figure out what fairness is, <laughs> you know, but I'll tell you how I use that. When we used to do a lot of trainings, there were people in the room at Stanford primarily who would say how unfair it is that like their husband had cheated on them or, you know, their business, somebody had stolen something or, you know, real things. Yep. And I remember stopping a class and saying, let's talk a little bit about fairness. You're in a room here at Stanford University, one of the, the world's top universities. It's a beautiful day outside. You have food, clothing, and shelter. So right now, just in those parts of conditions, you have a life probably in the top 10% of human beings who have ever walked on this planet. Is that fair? I don't think you actually are interested in fair. I think you're interested in you benefiting. I don't think fairness is important to you. <laughs> I don't think you have even the slightest shred of interest in fairness. I think you only bring up fairness when you don't get more. Oh, Fred, you're just so wonderful. But you get what I'm driving at, right? Oh, I mean, here we I, are. I, I do. It's just so, it's so real, but uh, it's tough. It's tough. I mean, we all have three squares a day. We have food, shelter, clothing. You know, the people in the Bay Area can take vacations. And, and they're complaining to me that life isn't fair. And I'm agreeing with them. 
And here's the third one. We have to accept our own vulnerability and that we cannot control our loved ones. And often a lot of our grievances are, we believe that because we love them so much, we ought to be able to control them because if we can't, we might get hurt. In fact, we will get hurt, whatever happens. Andrew, the one that you just talked about, the vulnerability, is the crucial issue in all of this. Human beings are legitimately anxious and scared almost all the time because at some part of us, we know how vulnerable we are. And we spend a good part of our life trying to deal with that, often unsuccessfully. And one of the ways that we try to master our vulnerability is by holding grudges. Another way we try to master our vulnerability is by making up all these rules in our head about how life should be. So we make up these rules so we don't have to live with the uncertainty. When those defenses fail, that's when we're really scared and when we're really at risk. And it's the reason why forgiveness is so difficult is because grieving deals with our vulnerability and grudges try to mask that vulnerability. And so healthier people grieve and more fragile people hold grudges. And it's tough work forgiving, but um, I think we ought to raise up the benefits of it. What are the benefits of forgiving? Less stress because you're not regurgitating the fact that you've been harmed, greater efficacy and hope, because once you've handled life's difficulties, you have a greater sense that you can do it again. You've generally learned how to repair relationship, even if it's just in you. So you have greater relationship skills and you carry with you a general sense of less threat because you've checked in and recognized that even if you've been slammed, you can come out at some level with your heart still open. And so those are the benefits of forgiveness. On the, on the negative side or the what they make you do less of, there's less blame, there's less victimhood, and there's less um, stress-related illnesses, and there's less of a sense, and this is the big issue for our world, there's less defending our cruelty because others have been cruel to us. That That's the human's default. Like My mother didn't love me, so I don't have to love. My partner was lousy, so I can do this. My boss is terrible. I don't have to do a good day's work. We use our unresolved wounds to defend our own lack of goodwill, and forgiveness chips away at some of that. So in a moment, I'm going to sort of look at this forgiveness in action with a letter that somebody's written in to me. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter 
Like us on Facebook and visit our website, angiegmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. Let me tell you about my new Substack newsletter, because I'd love the Meaningful Life listeners to subscribe. The newsletter is a mixture of advice and my thoughts about building a meaningful life. I'm hoping that as it grows, it can become a shared space somewhere you can tell me your thoughts and suggest ideas for new podcast episodes. You can find everything at themeaningfullife.substack.com, so please do sign up. Details will also be in the show notes. You'll find some interesting articles that I've written in uh, my Substack, things like great books to take away with you on holiday, and what is a zombie marriage and how you can repair one. So if you go to my website, uh, www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, you'll find out how you can send a letter in to me. And here is a letter that's been sent in for me to discuss with Fred. My husband recently passed away. I found evidence of him having cheated on me because I found condoms in his bag. Since he's deceased, I can't ask him. So now I'm left to make up details. I obsess over them. I believe the affair was two years ago when we were having a rough time. I know he loved me, but I still can't get the images and the thoughts of his betrayal out of my mind. I can't eat or sleep and I cry constantly. How do I stop obsessing and go back to remembering the love we shared and the life we built for 37 years? So here is a nice concrete example of somebody who has most probably done harm to another person and they are stuck because there's nothing this other person can do because they're no longer there. But our correspondent is left with a lot of very painful feelings and at a very painful time because losing your partner is extraordinarily difficult to recover from. So what would you say to this one, Fred? That her goal is wrong. What should her goal be then? She can't go back. Her goal is to come to a more mature experience of her marriage and that she was presented with information as to who her husband was that shattered a fantasy. So she has to grieve that fantasy, that false version of who he was and come into a more mature understanding of his flawed nature and of her inability to discern the truth. So there's some forgiveness of her and some forgiveness of him. And then, if possible, open up to, on balance, the gifts that they shared were better than the losses and the difficulties and the hidden things that he kept from her. But before she can get there, she's got to be able to see clearly who he was, who he wasn't, the limits of their relationship. She can't go back into innocence and she's wanting to, and that is intensifying her suffering. At some point, hopefully, she'll come out of this and say, I had a long marriage with a flawed human being who kept some things from me. I didn't investigate certain things. But when I look back, you know, we created something good. 
we mostly treated each other well, and I'm I'm sorry he's not here. But that there's no like fairy tale romance in that. Now, the only other thing that I will say is this is not uncommon. Not the degree that she found, but it's not uncommon when partners die that people find out things that they didn't want to know when the partner was alive. And they're forced to come to a more mature reckoning of who that person actually was. Because sometimes we have a view of our partner, which is our sort of personal, we've constructed them in a particular way and we've taken out evidence that we don't really want to have. And our version of them is wonderful, but actually the real person in all their richness, you know, and all their contradictions often is far more interesting and far more wonderful, really, than just a sort of cardboard cutout version that we've created of them. But you also know the work on positive illusions, that in order for a long-term relationship to prosper, we have to have positive illusions about our partners, that it's important for us to think that they're better than they actually are, that they're superior to the average person, because those positive illusions form a kind of web that the couple creates around itself. So it becomes protected from some of life's like difficulties and challenges. So we've put these things up to protect ourselves, but actually when they crumble, we are 30 times more hurt because we have to accept. And that's the other problem of bereavement is you have to accept that life is is finite. And we spend most of our time trying to avoid that piece of information. So she's not only having to deal with the fact that life is finite and that her husband was a flawed person like everybody else here. They did some research and they checked out couples. I don't remember the exact stage in their courtship. And they checked out whether people who knew really who they were marrying, but jumped in with awareness and the desire to see the best in their partner, did better than those in the marriage, than those who weren't able to see the partner's flaws, that a kind of informed consent and a desire to just say, hey, I chose them. I know they're sloppy and I'm choosing to like just love them. That was a predictor of uh, the stronger marriage than just they're wonderful, blah, blah, blah. Those marriages built on a false foundation had a harder time. Because we're all sloppy people, really, aren't we? Exactly. And that's, I think, at least I hope, one of the strengths of this podcast is we're all here to show our sloppiness together. Thank you, Fred, for sharing some of your sloppiness with me today. As a witness on The Meaningful Life, I have to ask you, what makes your life meaningful? I mean, as I've gotten older, it's much more small things than any big things. I mean, I've, I've achieved pretty much whatever I might need to achieve in a life, the big picture things. You know, I've written best-selling books. I teach at a major university. I've raised kids. I've, you know, had a successful relationship. 
So what what gives meaning to my life? I can think I'm just trying to go through the last week or so. So one moment that was meaningful to me was I was teaching a class at Stanford and someone asked a question and I recognized that I could give an answer to that that very few people could give that answer to. Like just at that moment, I had honed over 30 years an expertise and I could use that expertise to help someone. So that, that moment had real meaning. Yesterday, I picked up my girlfriend's child at a shopping center. And on the way home, and we've been together almost 10 years, on the way home, I realized that this kid was not so young anymore. You know, I've, I've known her since she's been like five, and now she's 14. And I had this lovely exchange with her of, wow, you know, I love the fact that you're now an adolescent, so I can make fun of you. You know, it's like, you're now a bigger kid, so we can kid. And she looked back and said, yeah, I'm not a little kid anymore. And and that moment was rich. And yesterday, this same partner, her mom is sick. And so she may have to travel to take care of her mom. And, you know, I had a moment of appreciation for myself that, you know, Fred, like you're at a stage in your life where you could go with her if you needed to, like, you know, stay with her or you could stay home if she needed to just go. Like you have a freedom and a like you're cool. It's not like that you need her to like, And so those were three moments of meaning, purpose, good feeling, like I'm in relationship at the moment and I can contribute something positive. So that that would be how I would answer that. Well, unfortunately, that's where our conversation ends, unless you are a supporter of The Meaningful Life. If you are, then you can hear the three things that Fred knows deep down to be true. And I'm going to go through his nine steps to forgiveness as well. So if you'd like to become a supporter, the details will come in a moment. If you'd like to subscribe to the bonus material, there's a special button on Apple. There's also one on Spotify. And here are the details for how to become a supporter of the meaningful life. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.